0: The Book Club is brought to you in association with Charles Stanley Community, providing our clients, colleagues and friends with practical support and conversation. Find out more at Charles Stanley Community.
1: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I am joined by Andres Neumann, Is a Argentinian-born novelist who now lives in Spain and he's been routinely showered with awards and prizes and he's been named one of Granta's best of young Spanish-language novelists. Andreas' new novel is called Fracture. It's published just imminently in the UK in fabulous translation and it tells the story of an elderly Japanese man who as a boy, survived the double bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the present day of the novel is set around the disaster in the Fukushima nuclear plant in Japan all these years later. Andres, welcome. Can you tell me a bit about why, you know, you as a sort of South American Spaniard chose to write about somebody Japanese? It's a pleasure,
0: and thank you for this conversation. I'm sure we're going to enjoy it. As for your first question, the first quote from the novel is by a poet, the great Polish poet, uh, Miłosz, who wrote If something exists somewhere, it will exist everywhere. Just think nowadays, environmentally speaking, that's a key idea really, and not to mention the pandemic. The pandemic we're fighting now only shows how short-sighted, or dangerous even, it would be to believe that what happens on the rest of countries or cultures has nothing to do with our own lives, there are actually no borders for what matters the most, I think. And the novel constantly plays with what we could call borderless forces that can affect everybody everywhere, such as energy, economy, fear, and love, of course. But secondly, this uh, mysterious Japanese man actually spends most of his life abroad, and that how it connects with my own displacement. I was born in Argentina as you said and my family went to exile when I was a child so I was raised in both countries. I went to school in both countries and continents actually so I'm a bit myself a kind of migrant individual and I was very interested in experimenting a bit with the idea of a kind of super migrant meaning that he virtually is everywhere. His just like the virus or the energy, because supposedly he works for electronics company, so he has to change office quite often, so a chapter takes place in Paris, another one in New York, another one in Buenos Aires, precisely, in my born city, and in Madrid there's another chapter too. The idea was trying to tell a story about how different cultures, different languages get on, get along, and uh, trying to explore a bit in, lost in translation, but as well the love in translation, because the plot goes very much about the relationship between translation and love, love as a form of translation, and translation as a form of love.
1: You have these chapters in these different cities, these different episodes of his life. You tell it from his point of view, and you also tell it from the point of view of the woman with whom he's in a relationship in each of those phases of his life as well.
0: Exactly. Voice in literature is so important for me because fiction as well as traveling are the most powerful tools that humankind has to try to become someone else, like experience someone else's life or to turn yourself into someone else. I think that Rebecca Solnit said that The whole point of reading was to be able to transcend your basic identity and experience being others. So I think at least trying to be others, to put ourselves in other people's positions, is at the very heart of art experience. And it's actually even very useful emotionally, but as well politically, because we inhabit a world where people refuse constantly to inhabit the other person's point of view. It's everything about reaffirming your own identity and point of view. And I find it very liberating to imagine, just like when we were children, that I am someone else and see what happens and how can I be myself modified. Of course, if you're talking about a different culture, different gender or a different age, you have to do a research as well. It's not like just improvising suddenly. So I spent a few years studying the Japanese literature and reading a lot about it, but as well exercising that wonderful muscle that is imagination.
1: Did did you know Japan well or Japanese well before you embarked on this novel? Because it shows great depth of knowledge of sort of Japanese literature. You talk about Tamiki Hara and the history of post-Hiroshima literature and the silence in Japan. It reads like you're someone who knows Japan and Japanese literature inside out. Was it something you just sort of embarked on for this book?
0: Partly, I was interested in Japan beforehand since I was a child. It was a kind of a small obsession I had. I was like what they called otaku. So kind of a bit of a fan of the Japanese things. But it was just a hobby, you know, Japanese cinema, Japanese literature. And of course, when I was a child, I used to see the Japanese TV shows, etc. More specifically, I wasn't that much into Japanese history and literature until this idea came to me under the form of a potential novel. It was just because three things that made me go deeper. The first one was the uh, earthquake on March 11, 2011 which was the most powerful earthquake ever happened in Japan which is impressive because Japan is a kind of island uh, full of earthquakes all the time and when this happened which led to the tsunami which led eventually to the uh, nuclear accident in the Fukushima plant I was really moved by reading that the uh, axis of the planet had shifted by a few centimeters. So literally, what this Polish poet said, if something exists somewhere, it will exist everywhere, metaphorically had been turned into a literal thing, the whole axis of our planet. So the world changed after that earthquake and the nuclear accident. And indeed, nuclear accidents or environmental issues cannot be divided according to official borders. So that was the first thing, like feeling that tremor, me too. I remember myself, I was living in Paris because I was teaching there for a couple of years. So when the accident took place, I was there, right? And by the way, France is one of the nuclear powers in the world, the first European nuclear power, by the way. So I remember myself watching the YouTube to see this horrible mushroom coming out again in Japan. And suddenly I realized that it was an Argentinian person with an uh, Spaniard background witnessing from France a Japanese accident. So I suddenly said to myself, where is this happening really? So this triggered the idea. The second thing was an incredible man, a real man, whose name was Tsutomu Yamaguchi. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he did exist and survived both atomic bombs. He was the August 6th in Hiroshima, by chance, working, and he survived. But, strangely enough, he managed to catch the train because the trains resumed working like two days later. That's very much Japanese. And he cocked the train back to Nagasaki, thinking he was safe at last. From that horrible thing that had happened in Hiroshima, and he didn't even know what had happened because no one had seen an atomic bomb before. And as soon as he arrived to Nagasaki, he suffered a second bomb, which killed his family but not him. And
1: to top this all, he lived for more than ninety years old. I think I remember this story. Did you meet him? Because you put him in your acknowledgments. Did you meet him before he died or not?
0: Oh no! I would have loved to, but you know what? And this is the poetical part of oh, the story. Sorry, I said
1: I would have been thrilled to meet. Him. He? No,
0: no. The thing is, he died a few months before the Fukushima accident. The point is that he didn't see the repetition of history just by a few months. So he was lucky enough to see his life finishing before the horrible accident. So I thought. But had been fantastic, as you said, to meet him and know what he would have felt in front of the repetition of history. So I invented a character with an entirely different life, but inspired in this real man who I think was the closest to immortal that a human being can be. Surviving two atomic bombs and living for almost a century.
1: Your Mr. Watanabe resists, doesn't he? being defined by his survivorhood though
0: well the whole novel fracture plays with the notion of scars and wounds not only visible but inner wounds and what we can do with
1: them well, and I this is pers- konsugi that exactly. comes through again and again can you explain what Kintsugi is and what role that plays in the novel i found that fascinating
0: absolutely and it's even on the cover right like with this golden bands you can see. Oh, the, yes. That was actually the third thing that led me to write the novel, to fall in love with a Kintsugi. Kintsugi is an ancient Japanese art of reparation which consists of repairing the object by introducing gold powder on the crux of the object, showing the cracks rather than concealing them. So that the object will remember forever what happened, but will have a new future based on memory. So it gets another future without ever denying its past. But the amazing thing to me about this uh, wonderful way of art or even philosophy is that in the art market in Japan, objects, pottery for example, repaired with this technique cost more money than they did before getting broken. So these repair objects are indeed literally more valuable than they were before. And I've always thought, wouldn't it be fantastic to apply this philosophy to people who survived things? Because we don't do that definitely with the people who survived. So the whole point of the novel is trying to think in Kinzugi terms the broken love relationships, the politics, and as well the bodies, because different people with different kind of scars meet each other and learn how to love each other, starting from their own scars as a fundamental part of their identity, just like the repaired pottery in the Kintsugi.
1: You also mentioned history. I'm wondering the periods and the places you choose. In each case, you seem to stress an issue of historical memory and of recent disaster. You know, when he's in France, the memory of the Paris occupation and the Vichy government is very up front. You're in the New York of the late 60s and early 70s when Vietnam and Watergate are kind of going on. In Buenos Aires, there's the Junta and the memory of the disappeared. And again, in Madrid, we're leading up to and around the time of the Atosha station bombing. Was that a sort of deliberate constellation of historical accidents to point up parallels
0: Ah, absolutely because first of all they are public collective scars where for different reasons and very different circumstances the countries and their societies got broken and after that the focus was not on the events and the novel but what happens next what do you do with your own pieces and what do we do with we call historical memory, as he mentioned. I was really interested in comparison between different kinds of national reconstructions through the common plot of these super migrant called Mr. Watanabe. I asked, well, you mentioned earlier something that I find interesting, which is the silence of the people who survived Certain things, like for example, an atomic bombing in Japan, and the more I researched about the victims of the civil war in Spain, for instance, or the victims of the uh, military dictatorship in Argentina, where I was born, even my family was a victim of that with exiles, kidnappings, etc., or Japan. I could say, I could tell that there were, in spite of cultural differences, certain patterns. As if, as a human being, surviving certain kind of things that no one wants to talk about later, shapes a very specific kind of silence and shame and difficulty to convey those memories to the people they love. Many people don't know about what happened to their loved ones, not even their country people or the fellow country people. But even though, if you allow me to tell you just a very short anecdote, I had an aunt in Argentina who was kidnapped and tortured during the dictatorship in the 70s when I was a baby. And she never said what happened. I mean, we, of course, knew what happened to her. And she reappeared. She saved her life, fortunately, and she exiled To Spain where she went on living for many years after that trauma and she never never described what had happened to her siblings or mother and once like 30 years later she told me and I wrote a book about that so my grandmother and my father learned her story through the book 30 years later so the thing is that you never know when's the right moment to tell this and the novel tries to work with this in these two levels, the intimate and the collective. In the intimate is the difficulty of Mr. Watanabe to choose the right moment to convey his trauma to his partners. Sometimes he tells a story too late and they get offended. Sometimes he tells a story too early and they get kind of intimidated. Sometimes the people he meets want to talk too much about it and he feels uncomfortable and sometimes it's him who wants to talk about it and the, the other people don't want to hear about it. So it's a difficulty about how we do tell the difficult stuff to the people we love. But in the collective level, sociology has studied the paradox of the different generations that never find the right moment. When there's a trauma, like, you know, the bombings or a civil war or whatever, dictatorship, the first generation cannot talk about it because... They don't have a language for that. It's like uh, insufferable, too painful. The following generation does have language, but it's not the right moment, you know. It's inappropriate because you're rebuilding the country, etc. So it's maybe not a good moment to go deep into the past or maybe later. And then the third generation is so far away from it that it becomes unthinkable and you don't believe that happened. So there's never a right generation to remember. And that's why Kinzugi is so useful, in my opinion, as an emotional and political tool.
1: You talk about this gap, this period of time after the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where Japanese writers and artists didn't write about it. And then you do mention people like Tamiki Hara. It started to be talked about. Was Hmm. there the same gap? Was there a parallel process in the way that Argentine writing and history addressed the dictatorship? Was there a similar gap and a similar process, or was it different?
0: Hmm. There are similarities and differences. It's a very interesting question, and I did myself that question so many times uh, while I was writing the novel. On the one hand, there are definitely similarities dealing with The fact of trauma, silence, impossibility to convey. And that's why, you know, the supposedly main character barely speaks a word. Because, you know, there are four chapters told from female characters who speak by themselves, but his chapters are told from a third person narration. So he says very little throughout the whole novel. He's told by someone else always. But there are differences too, and that's why the Japanese case struck me as very special and meaningful because they were defeated in the war For example, half of my family is Jewish and I'm very involved with the Jewish collective memory but Japanese case is even more, not serious, but twisted it was like more complicated to tell the story because Japan had been defeated And remembering the victims of the bombs was equal to remember, on the one hand, the horrible things that the Japanese empire had done, not only to their own people, but to China or Korea. So there was the shame of their own empire and the shame of the victims of that war that they had lost. So the survivors not only were often ill or very wounded, but they were not entitled to tell the story. No one wanted to hear about it whereas in Argentina, with many difficulties and not always with the same kind of intensity, but there was definitely at least a partial process of telling the story and doing an exercise in collective memory. So there are nuances in every country and I was interested as well in the comparison and finding the differences between a country who who wins or loses a war, a country who does or not the collective memory exercise, a country which sets a trial or doesn't. And I found it really fascinating. But again, the point was how this affected the emotion of the characters and their love or even sexual life. So so I was more interested in the intimate mirror of these political issues.
1: The present tense of the novel has Mr. been making a sort of quite quixotic journey towards, you know, while everyone else is going away, the site of the Fukushima exclusion zone and into it. First place, did you go there as a matter of research? And also, what was the idea there to counterpoint what appears to have been an accident with what, Hmm. at least in a straightforward surface accounting of it, was a very deliberate nuclear attack?
0: Well, the point is that uh, the nuclear energy in Japan began after the bombings. That's the incredibly complex human nature. They based part of their economy in the very same energy that destroyed them. That is too much human, isn't it? Like, we are perfectly able to self-destruct and self-rebuild constantly. And Japan is one of the most powerful nuclear countries in the world even though their constitution denies the nuclear weapons, but the energy is there. And it's a dangerous energy, as we know, from Chernobyl or Three Mile Island or Fukushima. Once an accident happens, and that can happen, there's nothing that can be done and the harm is forever. It was an accident, but someone decided to set so many nuclear power stations before that happened. And of course, a nuclear power station can be handled in a way on another and can be administered in so many different ways so it was an accident, but there were uh, some previous problems indeed, I was really fascinated by all those nuclear post-apocalyptic landscapes I think that we are all half horrified, half fascinated by that kind of empty spaces because they talk about our own death It's like the irresistible fascination of that is that we are witnessing the future we shouldn't witness, like a kind of posthumous look to the world. And that's really kind of science fiction feeling to it. So everybody who has been to Chernobyl surroundings or Fukushima surroundings can feel that they are witnessing something that no human should be able to witness. And what Mr. Watanabe does is hiring a car uh, in some point and deciding for the first time in his life, instead of running away from his memories and from his own nuclear identity, to go and face it and see it and belong to it. So he kind of tries to lead life on the prohibited area or very close to it, and meeting many different characters which are really original individuals that for many different reasons have decided to stay I did a huge research on that and I tried every single documentary, book, interview or testimony I could find but once I did that, I just invented them because what I really like about novels is that you study in order to invent invent better Beckett said fail better and sometimes we can imagine better but what allows us to imagine with a solid imagination is researching first not to repeat your research but in order to um, enhance your capacity of inventing characters so what i did was reading a lot about that and they tried to forget and inventing the characters
1: did you feel any weight of responsibility or expectation or a duty to the historical record. There are people now who would say this story is one for the Japanese people to tell, the cultural appropriation argument that says you have to step carefully if you're telling somebody else's story. Did you feel that? Um, did you? It persuaded me. <laughs> I mean, it, it sort of astonished me in terms of, you know, God, this guy seems to know... New York in the 70s, Japan in the noughties. It was very persuasive, the research you'd done. I was just wondering whether you felt anxious, you know, interrogating foreign countries historical trauma.
0: I felt the duty to be very respectful. And respect in this regard meant study and trying to understand as much as I could. But I didn't give myself such an importance to believe that I was (laughs) talking in someone else's behalf. That's the point. I wasn't doing the Japanese job. I was doing my job. And my job was observing Japan from a Western point of view. And that's why, precisely, the character is not the Japanese, 100% Japanese. I mean, I think the key is that the Japanese we found in the novel is a Japanese who travelled so much and lives for so long abroad that he's a kind of mixed person, culturally speaking. So on the one hand, the novel is not about explaining what Japan is about but comparing Japan with supposedly distant cultures and since I'm from a distant culture (laughs) I was the right person to do that because the Japanese is not distant from themselves but it's very interesting, even in the second level the classic risk of appropriation and everything else even though, as I said, I think that transcending your borders is the point of fictional imagination. And even though I didn't try to explain to Japan anything at all, because I'm not entitled to, interestingly enough, the novel is being translated into Japanese, and they had never translated one of my books before. Among the many languages that my books have been translated, no Japanese translation had happened yet until this book came out. And I was myself, just like you, surprised, even though it's not written for the Japanese people. What could a Japanese reader get from this? And you know what my Japanese translator said? I found it really interesting and revealing of the nature of literature, I think, because apparently they told me that since I was not familiar with the taboos or the silences or even the politically correctness in japan i didn't know the code right i apparently had written and dared to say things that were like hard to say in japan not because i know better than them which is of course not the case but because i am outside and that's really powerful right it's just like when you talk to a stranger and you feel liberated and you say why saying this to a stranger and I didn't say this to my sister or my husband or maybe you're abroad, very far away, you say why I'm feeling so cozy and kind of feeling that the people who look at me understand me if I don't even speak the language precisely because the sense of distance so I think if we become too obsessed with the property of identities, we can miss a half of the question, which is not only respecting the inside of every single different culture, but as well the advantages of looking yourself from the outside and allowing the other people to look at you from the outside and take advantage of it to use the other people as a mirror.
1: I'm interested, there's a character, a minor character in the novel, but he runs through it in quite a subtle way. An Argentine journalist, very pushy character called Pinedo, who's desperately trying to get hold of <laughs> Mr. Watanabe. Is he kind of a proxy for you? Is he a joke about your persona or your role? Yeah, in a way, yes. I think well first
0: of all, I'm very, very concerned about generations and how to unite them in terms of a plot. Like we live in a era in you know, a times where we are putting people in boxes and even in the very same culture according to the year you were born and the software you use and the social network you're using you kind of are split or divided from the other people so we're creating so many generational gaps and I very much love the stories that attempt to communicate different generations I don't mean the readers but the characters themselves like having friends or loves in different times and generations. And in this case, Pinedo, this pestering, insisting, very stubborn journalist, belongs to my own generation. I think he's the only person on the book exactly my age. He belongs to the generation of Mariela's son. Mariela is one of the women, the translator, who appears on the Buenos Aires chapter and who tells her story about Watanabe in Argentina his son should be my age, approximately, like Mariela is more or less my mother's generation and I was really excited to invent a character who would be able to be a door for my generation to enter the story, but on the other hand, as you said, he's as well that distant guy who falls in love with a plot who seems to be far away and the more he researches on that, the more he feels identified, and the more he feels that there's something of, that belongs to him in that distant place, so he does his best to research. But as a kind of a joke, the person he's chasing doesn't want to talk to him, just like sometimes the material we're researching escape us, or just the same way that sometimes we try to build a character and the character kind of avoids us and do not work Properly, so it's a, a bit a metaphor as well between the twisted relationship between character and narrator.
1: Yes, actually, speaking of characters, there's one curiosity in the book. Everybody in the book who appears pretty much is a fictional character, obviously. But you include Rayu Murakami, who is a real mm. a real person, <laughs> a real writer in the book. Was that a sort of private joke? Is he a friend of yours, or was he? <laughs> Why is he in there? <laughs>
0: that it was a joke, I mean the book is full of jokes that's something else you know that I I really like to do is tragic comedy the darker plot could be the more I want to throw dark jokes and the more comic a story is the more dark I want to become so the bittersweet flavor is my favorite one and the book is full full of small silly jokes and one of them is Murakami, but the function of those jokes with real people are as well to give more body to the fictional character. Since Mr. Watanabe is an imaginary character who never existed, even though he's inspired in many people, I thought it would be nice and a good point about the relationship between journalism and literature, real case and fiction, to make these imaginary characters meet real people in real addresses and even writing real books so that those fictional characters appear to get a fuller body and a higher awareness of what we call the real world.
1: Yes, he writes, he, he tells a funny story, which I don't know, <laughs> maybe this is true, that Ryu Murakami is very annoyed at always being overshadowed by Haruki Murakami and
0: I suppose outside Japan, that should be the case. I know he's pretty well known in Britain, and I understand he has a few books translated into English. He's less well known in Spanish, but you can certainly read him in Spanish too. But I can imagine that once he travels abroad, many people
1: take only his family name. But it was a joke anyway, I hope he forgives me. (laughs) No, it was lovely. Now, one of the things that we haven't talked about in depth, but seems to me central to the book, is this idea of different languages. I mean, it's full, Mm. even in translation. It's got these dizzying jokes about Japanese words that rhyme or have an association with English words and with Spanish words. And, Mm. you know, Mr Watanabe's way of going through the world is conditioned, as his lovers say, you know, by the, the mistakes he makes in his various True. adopted languages. You have this slide where you say grammar conditions the memory of its speakers. Do you think a different language actually really does create a different world, a different person, a different persona, a different worldview?
0: Hmm. It might be. I am a translator myself, not a very professional one at all, but I do a bit of translation myself and I'm interested in foreign languages all my life. Maybe that's because when I was a boy, my family exiled and I didn't change language but I changed accent and intonation because Argentinian Buenos Aires accent is hugely different from the Andalusian, South Spain accent so since I was a boy I was very aware of how even my mother tongue sounded and it could be perceived as a foreign accent without getting out from your mother tongue so I was raised as a foreigner of my own mother tongue And that maybe made me to fall in love with languages and translation. And it could be that speaking a different language makes you feel different. I don't think that's because an essence. That would be too German. In the big imperialist days, the Germans thought that German language was perfect to think, like in Italian you cannot think so well. I don't think that kind of essence are true. But what I do think is that when you change language, even though you are not fluent in a foreign language, or even though you make so many mistakes, just like I'm do- making now in English, a whole entirely different background comes to your head and emotions. You can remember movies, you can hear voices you don't usually hear if you're speaking your mother tongue, you're, like you have your own references, your own music, your own memories, your own memories of travels, and all that really affects the way you are behaving while speaking another language, the literature you've read, you know? And the book focuses on that, and as well on what happens to us when two different languages clash. The same way when we make mistakes in our life, we unintentionally draw perfect portraits of ourselves. Our mistakes do portray Ourselves much more than our successes. You make a mistake or lapsus, and that is you. The same way, when you make a mistake in a foreign tongue, that speaks volumes of how your mother tongue works. So, all the people that fall in love and know are trying to deduct, guess how the other person's language is through the mistakes and the people fall in love and get interested in, to each other through the mistake they made that make them feel more interesting. So yes, is a novel about linguistic mistakes as a form of falling in love too. That's
1: not real. Do you speak Japanese, incidentally?
0: Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I just studied just a little bit for the novel. Like I read a couple of books to get the basics, you know, like, <laughs> like level one of Japanese. But what I did do, I mean, there's not much Japanese on the novel, really, but what I really did was talking to people who is fluent in Japanese. And I interviewed them, and I asked them about how they did to learn the Japanese, what kind of problems they faced, and I read quite a lot about learning Japanese. This is funny, I didn't learn Japanese, but I read about learning Japanese. Isn't it perfectly literary? (laughs) (laughs) What I read was books and manuals on teaching foreign languages to Japanese speakers, for example, how to teach Spanish to a Japanese student, and I was interested more, I mean I will never master such a language as the Japanese, even though if I try, but that wasn't my goal either, my goal was try to understand how a Japanese feels when they try to learn a foreign tongue and vice versa, and that I did a big research, but sadly I can't say only a few words in Japanese I'm afraid.
1: You know, one of the tests people sometimes say is the language that the deepest one for you is the one you dream in. As someone who grew up with Argentine Spanish and in your adult life had to speak Catalan Spanish, which is the one you dream in? Are you aware of that?
0: Well, it changes, you know. I don't know if this happened to you, but if you stay for a while, abroad, can happen that you start singing on the shower in a different language or talk to yourself, you maybe say, you know, dirty words in a foreign language because you're hearing that on the radio, on the TV, on the street all the time. And I definitely remember having dreamed in a different language. Of course, that doesn't happen to me just because, must be because of something. Normally, when I'm reading a different language or living somewhere else with a different tongue. And when that happens to me, I feel very happy and moved because this proves that even the unconscious can be a translating device and we can be profoundly modified by other cultures and other languages and my favorite real character is, you know, these people that have lived abroad for so long speaking a different language that they start to feel odd in their own language? Have you met one of those? Not knowingly. They literally begin to hesitate in their own tongue. I think those are like very poetical creatures.
1: Well, you have Mr. Watanabe doing that, don't you? When he goes back to Tokyo and he meets a member of a younger generation.
0: Exactly. And they think he's a yeah. foreign
1: language speaker. He sort of says something in a very pointed Tokyo accent. Exactly, exactly.
0: He's so hurt to see that young people think that he's not Japanese. Well, Myself, uh, there's something that happens to me quite often in Buenos Aires, you know, when I land, I catch the plane, not now by the way, (laughs) I used to take a plane with the Spaniard accent, which I usually use in my daily life since I was a child, but then the plane lands and I set foot in Ezeiza, which is Buenos Aires main airport, and I immediately change my accent and then i take a taxi and the taxi driver almost always asks me where are you from and then i stay in my birth city in my native city for a while and i'm really proud when the taxi driver who drives me back to the airport a few days or weeks ago they never ask me the same question what they ask is On holidays? No. They think I'm a foreigner when I land, and they think I'm a native when I live.
1: Can I ask finally, it's a slightly more technical question, but I'm interested, and I'm sure many anglophone readers will be very ignorant, as I am, of what the sort of literary tradition in Argentina is, and whether you feel you're writing in it or inheriting from it, I mean, I suppose we all think of four hairs, but is there a distinct Argentine literary tradition that you feel yourself writing in, or a wider Spanish language tradition?
0: Could be, I mean, it's not that I think about all the time while I'm writing, because you never know what's in your head when you're writing, maybe it's something that you don't know, but definitely thinking it more as a reader than as a writer, because I don't think a writer is entitled to say what is influencing them, because we don't really know. It's just wishful thinking. But as a reader, I do think that Argentine tradition has a lot to do with not only Borges, but the group around him, you know, brilliant writers as Silvina Ocampo, the best short storytellers in Latin America, and I'm very glad to see that she's been translated again in the last few years. And her sister Victoria Campo was a very important woman in the Argentine culture, and she was actually a Virginia Woolf's friend. There are quite a few interesting letters that they exchanged, and of course you have in that group Biel Casares too. And there are so many other writers, but my point is this group called the the Grupo Sur, the South group, who had a magazine called likewise Sur, had. A lot to do with world literature tradition. If you read Borges, you will find that he doesn't want to restrict himself to the uh, local tradition, but he loves translating Shakespeare or talking about, by the way, British authors as well, because I remember he was a fan of the Quincy or Kipling or Stevenson, and those writers in the beginning of the 20th century were not at the peak of their prestige in the English language literature, I understand like they were not the most prominent authors and Borges kind of cherished them very much and I think it's beautiful when someone from the outside gives you a new look into your own tradition the same way that, you know, Cervantes, who is the base of Spanish-speaking literature was sooner heralded and admired by the English and the Germans. In Spain he was successful, but in the 17th century no one realized it was not only a funny book, but an unforgettable masterpiece. And this was perceived earlier abroad. So I definitely welcome stranger people to come to my own national tradition and let me know what they think, because I learned a lot from that, and I think that's really important.
1: Um, Actually, of contemporaries, the book, very slightly, and I mean this as a high compliment, made me think of Don DeLillo. Is he someone you you admire? Hmm. Yes,
0: I like very much this super long novel.
1: Underworld is in English? Yes. Because that
0: one, I read it in Spanish, because it was so long that I didn't dare to read in English. (laughs) Fair (laughs) enough. Yes, yes, I like his work, and speaking about private jokes in English language literature. The second woman, the female narrator from New York is, is, is called Lori. And I chose that name only because I love Lori Moore's books, particularly this book of stories, Birds of America, but as well her novels. Well, she writes more short stories, I think, and her essays. I think she's brilliant and very funny, intellectual and funny at the same time. And that's hard to find just because of that. I chose her name, well, I stole her name for my character. That's lovely. Is she aware that you stole her name? I don't know, I don't think so, because I have never met her, but I don't think I would be brave enough to tell her if I meet her. I would just ask her to sign one of her books. Maybe if we have time to talk, maybe I would be uh, confident enough to tell her, but I wish I could tell her because it was a kind of tribute, as you said. And there are many small tributes, Watanabe's name. Well, first because Watanabe is a very common Japanese family name. There are millions of Japanese people called like that, and I like that common name. But secondly, one of my favorite Peruvian poets is José Watanabe. He's quoted on the first page, along with the other poet I had mentioned. You find four verses on the beginning of the book. One by Anne Sexton, another by a Japanese haiku poet, another one by the Polish Miloš, and the fourth one is Jose Watanabe. Jose Watanabe was born in Peru, but his father, I think, was Japanese. His mother was Peruvian and his father was Japanese. Maybe it was the other way around, but I think it was like this. So his poetry is a perfect mixture of Japanese visual, very light, very delicate, sensibility for poetry and the Latin American poetry. And I admire him very much. And I chose his name because of my admiration for
1: his poetry. Well, that's lovely. Let's hope Laurie Moore is listening into this anyway. Laurie, if you're listening this, I must confess, I love you. A lovely note to end on. Andres Neumann, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon Give Voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.